Hi, everybody. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you're watching on YouTube, you can always find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour, always a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer your questions, your audience-submitted questions. You have a chance to enter them into our Discord process. Uh, you can find a link there through into the Makana interface, which is what we use for question and answer in the back end. Once you submit a question there, it's available for everybody to vote on, and the voting is how we determine what to get to quickest and what we spend the most time talking about. So make sure you get your votes in there and any questions you have for us. Second hour is usually a dip, uh, uh, typically a deeper dive into a topic. And today, our second hour is about ambisonics. We'll talk about how ambisonic microphones can be decoded into multiple virtual mics and talk about how ambisonics relates to binaural audio and 360-degree audio. So that's our second hour, but this is the regular show, our first hour. So Jason, what are our viewer producers interested in today? Andy Carluccio in San Francisco, California writes in, I've been using an Elgato CamLink 4K for years, but yesterday it stopped showing an image from my camera. Changed the HDMI to a different source, swapped the ports on the Mac, tried a second cam link, and nothing changed. Works on my PC. Any other ideas? Jeffrey Powers, do you have a thought on this? Yeah, I, I'm assuming that this is a M1 that we're talking about here, uh, but it will also work on an Intel Mac. Uh, the first thing that I would try is checking to see if you've got something in your profile that's causing the problem. The easiest way to do that is just create another profile. And then log out. Got it. It's important to well, it's better to reboot the computer at that point, and then log into that secondary profile, and then see what happens with CamLink if it works. If it doesn't, if it does, if it does work, then that means that you have to go back into your profile and clean out some more uh, processes that could be holding things up. Uh, but uh, the other thing is, uh, you, I believe you said that you used it in a different program. I'm assuming you went to Zoom and then you went to OBS or something like that. So we won't get into that. So the profile would be the one thing that I would do first. And then if that doesn't work, uh, if, have, if you have a friend that has a Mac, just plug it in there and see if it works from there. There you go. Swap out things until we figure it out. Hopefully that was helpful, Andy. Thank you for the question. Let's go on to question number two. Steve Yuroff in Madison, Wisconsin, writes in, are there technical differences between a studio monitor, a reference monitor, and bookshelf speakers? And Javier Alfaro from in Mexico City is going to start us off here. Javier? Well, from my point of view, the studio monitors are a professional tool that has to be flat response. It has to don't, don't make things sound better. Actually, you have to, if something sounds bad, they should sound bad. You have to take decisions on that. Uh, for the studio monitors. The, refer the reference monitors, I think, uh, are, for example, in mastering uh, studios, or they're like even more precise tools. It's, it's like this, like the mirrors that you you get close and you see are your huge face and everything looks like that uh, because they have to take great decisions for the outside world. So they, they don't supposed to, to sound pretty if something is not perfect. And the bookshelf or are more of a commercial or user side uh, kind of speakers and they should be pleasant list to listen so if something doesn't sound that good it should be trying to make uh, everything like tamer and control something so it, one uh, the two first are more of a professional tools in the bookshelf for me are more of a personal uh, user side speakers jason beish um, not much to add. If I were to categorize them, I, I would say that all studio monitors are reference monitors and a bookshelf speaker is simply a form factor. And other than that, um, yeah, pretty much what he said. George Whittem. 
Um, I think there may be one distinction is that is I've understood that bookshelf speakers aren't backported. They are if they have ports at all, they're going to be front ported instead. So if you take a back a rear ported monitor speaker and shove it into a bookshelf, literally, um, you're now you're now encapsulating and blocking off the port. So front ported is better when you're going to have something on a bookshelf. Essentially, that's my one thing I can think of for specifically a bookshelf speaker. That makes. Perfect sense to me. Also, uh, I've heard from one of my old audio gurus that uh, sometimes in terms of studio monitor versus reference, I think Javier was perfect about reference has to be as close to accurate as is humanly possible because you need to know what's in the mix. I have had people who've told me that if you're setting up studio monitors, you want to set up those monitors so that they're as close to what your final user is going to be hearing as possible. And he said specifically back when they were working in disco, almost all of those had subwoofers that really enhanced the low end. So people needed to mix to hear that really substantially. So they would put in a subwoofer even into their studio monitors to make sure that they were hearing what was going to be going out in the clubs for that purpose. So it didn't have to be as accurate. It had to be just like what people were going to hear it in the use case that they yeah. were using. So translating so let's move. is tough. Getting it to yeah, translate. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you don't want an underpowered system if you've got bass heavy content because you're not going to be able to hear the things to fix. So let's go on to the next question. Paul Wall, who's in Austin, Texas, writes in, do you see a place at the table for Vimeo, Twitch, Google Videos? What platforms are on the rise and which ones are in decline? Let's start with Jeffrey. Jeffrey? So I don't think it, any of these are in decline or in rise or, or anything like that. They, they all have specific purposes. Uh, Google Video, I'm assuming you're talking about YouTube. YouTube is kind of the public uh, if you want to be completely searchable. If you want to, uh, in, in Google, if you want to be completely searchable uh, and uh, you have uh, have everything set up, it's uh, once again, it's the most popular one out of the, out of the three. Vimeo has more security features to it, uh, and it give, also gives you opportunities to create higher quality, uh, although uh, YouTube's really catching up to that. Twitch is Twitch. Is Twitch. It's a uh, it's just this, you know, it used to be uh, just in TV. It, it used to it was just a great place to do live streaming uh and uh, it still is and uh they and so they they just have different uses and and where your audience is that's where you're going to be javier yeah i think jeffrey is completely right there this uh, there is a place for all of these platforms i think twitch is actually more a platform it's like a social thing like you can stream video games in other places but twitch has like this captive audience and uh for example i use vimeo a lot for sending clients uh like reels and you can easily create showcases for different projects and power protect them and that what i found especially with corporate clients is they often have youtube blocked by their uh it because people spend they have this idea of if people can get into YouTube, they can look at other things that are not working and whatever. Uh, and that makes uh, YouTube and even uh, things like Dropbox sometimes not available for them. And Vimeo, since at least none of my clients use them for, let's say, recreational things, it's always open. So they never have problems with the Vimeo links. Yeah, I've had the same kind of circumstance. Uh, the, one of the reasons that I have a tendency to put my distribution work on Vimeo is that it connects really easily into websites. They have a really robust backend for that. I think even easier than YouTube and some other distribution platforms. So sometimes I figure out, ah, 
even if it's not a general one for developing the audience, it might have a specific function that you need. So that's where you go. Uh, and obviously, the the Twitch is just a wash in gamers. There's tons of uh, that kind of work going there, and and the rest of it's searchable. I still think people mostly use YouTube for search, but I might be wrong about that. Maybe they're all moving to TikTok for all I know. Uh, let's move to the next question. Aaron Jen Carroll in Flagstaff, Arizona writes in, Universe Control Lite is a free download from their website. Is anybody using this version of the program? Uh, we didn't have anybody who uses Universe a lot. Uh, this is kind of audio day, but that doesn't mean that there's nobody here who uh, who understands any of that. I just am not one of them, and, and nobody's raised their hand yet. So it looks like Universe is kind of one of those topics that we talk about on Friday a good little bit. So you may have more luck coming in on Friday to ask that question. That's where some of the Internet technology stuff is discussed here. Um, I don't see anybody who's popping up, so it looks like we're going to miss a little bit. Aaron, please hold on to your question. Remember it. Come back on one of the other days, and you might get a panel who's more technically competent in that specific thing. And if you see Andy Carlucci or any of the people that we know from uh, that back-end technical wisdom side, they'll know everything about it that there is. So look for them. Thanks. Now let's go to the next question. Kirag Chita writes in from Dallas, uh, OBS spot support has confirmed that the OSC commands will not work when plugged in via the HDMI converters. Are there any other similar cameras that would work connected to an ATEM, specifically looking for compact PTZ that can be controlled remotely. Jeffrey Powers, help us out. When it comes to anything USB, it, no, there's the only way that you can do it is through the through actually connecting up a USB camera to a computer where the software can be loaded, where the OSC commands uh, are basically live, and then pass through. Uh, so unfortunately, uh, in that case, no. But if you have HDMI cameras or something that can do HDMI and USB, then you're good to go on that. Absolutely. Let's go to the next question. Don Borntrager writes in, has anyone used auction sites, government or otherwise, to purchase gear? Success or failure? I have actually, I used to play with auctions a little bit. I used to go to some of the local ones. And my rule about auctions is that if one person wants it and it's you, you can get it really cheap. If two people want it, it's not going to be that cheap. If 10 people want it, it's going to go pretty close to retail. <laughs> so I don't know if that's entirely accurate, but that's how I think about it. Jeffrey, what are your thoughts? So here in, in Wisconsin, we have a thing called SWAP. It's called Surplus with a Purpose. And, and the, the thing is, uh, government agencies cannot outright sell computers or other devices and that includes the the local university here so what they do is they contract to swap which then they go in and they pick up anything that's basically put in the bin and this can be anything from computers that have been uh, any technology that's been used like for the last 10 years or they just bought it this, this year and they don't need it anymore and then it goes into uh, surplus with a purpose. A lot of states have these types of government-run uh, programs that also have auction sites to it. Uh, with Swap, I've gone there and I bought I, I, my first Sony PTZ cameras came from Swap. I had these uh, really great Audio-Technica uh, floor uh, microphones that I still have. Uh, I haven't used them in a while. But uh, they they came from Swap. I get a lot of lot of great stuff from there. So yes, I'd, I'd go to an auction house, but of course it's also uh, you know uh, just a, 
understand that you might get something that's not going to work that well because, uh, you know, it is a risk because it is used equipment. Courtney. Yeah, especially with government equipment, it can be a little bit risky because uh, documentation can be difficult to come by, uh, especially if it was, you know, top secret at one time but is no longer used. And so they haven't opened up the uh, support information for it. it uh, a lot of times it'll be obsolete. A lot of times the reason it is uh, orphaned and put up for auction is because there's some crucial part for that particular device that is no longer made, no longer available, so it's not fixable in any way. So you gotta, you got to really know what you're looking for and be willing to take a chance, and you might find something that's going to work for you. You might find something that makes a great doorstop. Uh, I found that a lot of government uh, surplus auctions and stuff, usually uh, they'll put it into a big warehouse and they'll give uh, educational institutions the first crack at it to let it, uh, let them obtain it for you know a certain price per pound, usually, that they auction stuff off to educational work, educational institutions, and they will sort through it and find out what's useful and what's useful they can uh, repurpose and use in, in education and what's not they'll end up selling on the junk market. When Courtney said per pound, it struck me, yeah, that the, one of the reasons I stopped hanging out at the auctions, it was fun, but things would tend to go in lots, and you'd be looking at something going, I really want that, but in order to get that, I have to buy the lot, and that's going to give me 40 things that I'm going to have to get rid of or throw away or otherwise deal with to get to the one thing I really want. That didn't seem like a good use of my time. So uh, next question. John Foltz in Sealands Grove, Pennsylvania, writes in, I'm looking for a stage box to get about 20 mics into Dante and bring them into a digital mixer such as Allen & Heath or Mukana. Recommendation, or <laughs> Yamaha, how about that? Recommendations? Uh, let's go to Courtney. Courtney. Well, if you're going to bring them into a Yamaha, you might want to go with a Yamaha stage box. Uh, here, the TO1608D digital stage box with Dante is about 1200 bucks. They also, uh, if you want to go uh, with more inputs, that's 16. Behringer makes a nice one that is uh, 32 inputs. Uh, that is their Behringer S32 Digital Snake I.O. box. Those are a couple of choices you can go to. Um, it depends. I'd go with the Yamaha if you have a Yamaha mixer. The X32, of course, works better in the Behringer in the Behringer X32 line, but they're both uh, Dante-capable and connect up just over some uh, uh, Cat6 or Cat5e. Jeffrey. And I think the new Tascam breakout box that comes with their... Well, it's, it's, a, it's a separate purchase from their uh, mixers, but I believe the, the breakout box itself could actually work with other other mixers, uh, but it hasn't come out yet, so haven't, nobody's really talked about it, tested it. Uh, so you could check that out. And let's go to the next question. Morgan Price in Victoria, BC, Canada writes in, what do you see the next advances for audio-only productions and events? Podcasts grow, synchronous tools like Clubhouse haven't grown, Descript's editing tool is very cool. What's next? Let me start with George Whittem here. George. Well, this is an incredibly broad um, <laughs> category of things. I mean, I was thinking, what would I talk about? I just trying to think of thing that was like next level that really blew my mind in terms of audio reproduction or audio events at NAM show. And I'm trying to find pictures, and I ran out of time. Um, I saw a PA system that was capable of creating three different signals depending on where you're standing in front of the array because it has some incredible beam forming 
speakers. This particular unit had a grid of 81 one-inch drivers that was on the front panel, each with a 100-watt amplifier controlled by DSP, and then another grid of mid-range, mid more, more full-range drivers in a grid of nine, all with their own amplifiers, DSP. And through incredibly powerful DSP, you could steer the, 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 the pattern of those speakers. And they actually had a pair of these outputting three signals simultaneously, depending on where you were standing. Even more amazing was that you could use their app and, and they had an AR layer on an iPad. And by pointing the, the camera at the room, you could show in the room virtually the speaker coverage. So you could design the amount of space in the room the speakers would actually be covering and then visualize using their AR app on the iPad what the coverage was going to be. So in terms of next level new technology, this one pretty well blew my mind. Um, so if I find the actual uh, product name, um, I will put it in the chat. Courtney. Well, I would have to say, of course, AI. Uh, real time, you know, the next thing as far as audio production for podcast and audio only stuff, I think real time translation and vocalization into another, into multiple languages in real time uh, that you could just pick your, pick your language and it would vocalize what you're saying in real time, translating it into a different language and saying it with a voice that sounds like you. So you train, you train at the beginning of your podcast or your event, you train that uh, particular AI bot to understand your voice and you assign that to your microphone channel. And uh, then you uh, set it to translate. It goes up to the cloud, translate your English into, you know, Burmese or whatever language you want to translate it into and then vocalizes it in your voice and sends it out as a subchannel on the uh, an alternate uh, audio channel in a different language in real time doing real time translation that would be cool huh? absolutely jeffrey yeah absolutely and uh, there's a lot of stuff with ai and uh, there are people that are taking ai it's it's all about those keywords like for instance if you use midjourney uh, and you put a picture in it it doesn't look at the picture it makes keywords from those pictures and then makes that. Now, now imagine you're talking in a podcast and there's an AI that's just taking keywords, not the words that you're, you're speaking, but what it thinks is keywords. And all of a sudden it creates another completely different thing, maybe a painting, maybe a video, maybe something else. Uh, it, it's, it's just really cool on uh, the stuff that some people are working on that uh, in AI that just takes it to another level. Uh, spatial audio. Uh, and, uh, you know, because they're doing it with music right now, they're taking and re-remastering re a lot of videos so it does have a spatial audio to it. Uh, podcasts are not far behind in doing something like that. So you could be sitting in your car and, and one person's talking from here, the other person's talking way back here or something like that, and maybe move around. So uh, if you're watching a uh, view the stars type uh, podcasts and you look up and you see, oh, there's Mars up there. And as the person's talking, they're just kind of moving around you and you can hear that. So those are the, those are the types of advances that I, I hear coming very soon. I'm just worried that my AI bot me is going to be a better me than I am. And I'm going to be constantly disappointing when I meet people in person because they're going to expect me to be the enhanced version of me. This is too confusing. Let's go on to the next question. 
<laughs> TJ Worrell in Minneapolis, Minnesota writes in, what is the panel's recommended field power for a sound devices mix pre-6-2? USB-C external battery, L-mount sled, 8X, uh, AA sled, best solution, willing to buy once, cry once. Uh, let's start with Jason Pace. Jason? Um, so this really depends on on what you have in the field. If you already have a battery system, then of course you know you want to be able to tap into that. If you have DTAP, then you know DTAP wins. Uh, if you're not going to be using it a lot or for a very long time, um, then yeah, you can't go wrong with double A's. That said, um, you know if it's just going to be on your desk, as long as you've got clean power, uh, I'd say a wall wart would be just fine. What do you think, Courtney? Never use double A's in a Mix Pre 6. It's, it'll last you about 20 minutes. Um, that's the problem. The Mix Pre 3 and the Mix Pre 6 are lovely, beautiful sounding devices. Uh, the problem is they suck power like crazy. Uh, this is a standard battery sled that sticks on the back of the 6 or the 3, and uh, it's problematic. And it holds rechargeable batteries or pin lights, but it'll only last a very short period of time. They make an L. L-mount sled, but the problem with the design of the L-mount sled is it takes two batteries. Uh, it takes one that sticks up this way and one that sticks down this way. So it it makes the unit so it's not going to sit flat anywhere, and you put it in a bag, it's going to stick out on both sides. It'll automatically switch from one uh, set, one L-mount battery to the other, so you can pull one off and charge it while you're uh, while the other one's powering the machine, and then put the charged one on and It'll switch automatically when the first one drains. It'll switch to the second one, et cetera. The best, ma the best way is, I think, as you said, through the uh, USB-C connector with a, uh, a good lithium-ion battery that's of high, high amperage if you want it to you know, run all day without having to switch it very often or recharge it very often. And Mickey in the chat mentioned the MX power sled. I guess that's a different option for this. I, for me, batteries were driving me so much crazy because I had so many different versions of them. And I started uh, trying to centralize on Sony FX uh, 950s, the big the big Sony. Uh, I think they're FX. I'm, anyway, I bought a ton of them and I try to adapt everything to them. And small HD had a sled that takes that out to a standard tap. And I, I'm... I've got a case with about 15 of those big batteries in there. And if I can get my world so that everything runs off of those, I'm going to be a happy camper. Because there was just too many charges, too many battery form factors, too much confusion about, oh, I thought that was this battery, but it's not. It's the wrong one. So I'm, I'm going to be running out of power here soon. Uh, battery power is complicated. And I know a lot of people go in the direction of just getting the big Anton Bowers or the Sony V-mounts or something like that and trying to tap those so that they run all their smaller devices just for the same kind of stop the madness thing that I've gone through. It, I think I find batteries still a little difficult to deal with. Let's yeah, move on to the next question. Oh, go ahead. Their cells are the N-type, yeah, like the N750 and the N950 Sony batteries. Yes, are the ones that's that right. MP, the, uh, that's right. Yeah, that's. In, I've got a whole case full of them over there, and that that's my go-to solution in the field. And I figure if I can just keep one and make sure I put the date on all of them so I know when they get five or six years old and I can get rid of them and, and always keep fresh batteries in the box. Let's go to the next question. Morgan Price in Victoria, BC, Canada writes in, what would the what would you use for an all-in-one audio field recorder today? Is the Tascam X8 the one to get for spoken word or interview, uh, plus a little bit of ambient recording? He's trying to replace a failing Zoom H5. Hmm, let's start with Jeffrey. 
Yeah, I saw the port of captures at uh, NAM. Uh, their X8 was very, very impressive. Uh, so it's not, it's not a no. Uh, it, the real question is how how much do you really want to spend on uh, something like that? Uh, I see that Mickey's uh, said that the sound device is 888, Scorpio is XCOM, Nova. Uh, those are some of the options that you have there, but it really depends on when it comes to price, and that X8 is $499, so it's within a reasonable amount. George? Going in completely opposite direction from some technological tour de force of the X8, you could kind of go in a more analog kind of uh, way. Analog meaning that it doesn't have layers of menus, buttons, touchscreens. Something like this. This is a Centrance portcaster. And yeah, it's only two mics. So if you only need two, you're covered here. But the beauty of it is it doesn't have any screen. Um, there is nothing to confuse you in the field if you're doing like hot, stuff that's hot or a real-time interviews ENG. Um, and the recorder is built in with a mobile micro SD and it looks like a tape recorder. <laughs> Record, stop. You can play back and check your playback, make sure it's clean and a VU meter. But it's this sometimes when you're, when you're running and gunning, um, having something as simple as humanly possible to operate and reliable with also really good sound quality and you can even plug a shotgun mic into it um, is the way to go. So it just depends on how you feel about extremely complex devices with millions of functions or very purpose-built gear. Courtney. You know, if you're looking for bang for the buck, uh, I'd say, you know, the sound devices are great, but they, like we just mentioned, suck power. So for a portable field recorder, they're not that great. The uh, And since you've had the Zoom line before, the Zoom A, uh, F series, the F series has better preamps. The F6 is under $800. It has six inputs. It has a time code generator built in. You can jam it, and it can record broadcast wave files for doing sync sound for uh, professional-type uh, double-system productions. It supports ambisonics. Since it's got six inputs, it has uh, four inputs. It can be used with ambisonic microphones. It has ambisonic mode. It supports that and supports ambisonic monitoring. It has little belt loops there. You can stick it on your belt. It sips power. It has three sources of power. You can. It has internal batteries. It has an external battery, L-type, uh, N-type cell. It can clip on the back, or, no, or maybe it's a different type, but a different type of clip-on lithium-ion battery on the back, and then it can support external battery input uh, as well, and it switches seamlessly between whichever one uh, is the best signal right now. And it has auto mix for doing uh, setups where you're you're going to uh, have a conference or a bunch of people around a table. Uh, so it does the fake Dugan uh, auto mix series that works pretty well. Uh, and it records uh, ISO files. It can record multiple files simultaneously, a left-right mix and a series of ISO ISOs of your individual inputs. It's quite a capable machine for that price. I think it's it's one of the best, and it's it's one of the smallest. It'll sit underneath a camera or on top of a camera and uh, uh, use it for field recording. I think it's a all-around pretty good quality machine for the price. There you go. Let's move on to the next question. James Brooks in New York, New York, writes in, Ozbot versus Insta360 Link. Which one should we go with? Jeffrey Powers, help us out. Well, the Obsbot uh, Tiny 2 has not, or Link 2, yeah, Link 2, has not come out just yet. So, uh, but the, the, the sensor on it is a little bit better than the Insta360. 
it is USB 3.0 rather than 2.0, which uh, can increase the uh, the pass through of data, which can be a really good thing uh, if you if you're trying to do a lot with that. Uh, but uh, once again, don't know we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I don't think I've seen anybody doing any OBSBOT versus Insta360 link comparisons just yet. But uh, I haven't done too much searching on that either. Fair enough. Let's go to the next question. Well, some guy named Bill Davis in San Diego writes in, George, what's with this Passport VO thing I keep reading about? So I, this was not on my radar. Suddenly it started being on my radar. I do a lot of voiceover work and I actually occasionally do stuff in the field uh, more and more these days, actually. And I've been using a Zoom H4N, but I saw this and it looked really intriguing. I know this is something you've been working on for a while. George, can you tell us kind of where, how it came about? Yes, elevator pitch time. Um, this is a, a product that was co-developed by my crew on my own show. I have this show called the Pro Audio Suite Podcast. And we postulated a few months ago, what would be really the ultimate audio interface for talent? In our, in our case, voiceover. But really a talent box that would have, again, this theme of no menus, no buried menus, no multifunctional switches and knobs where everything does one thing. What would that look like? How would it work? And what features would it have? And this is the thing that we came up with, which we, <laughs> with some vanity involved, called the Pass Port VO for Pro Audio Suite. Um, so Centrance and uh, the five of us essentially co-designed this. And Centrance, being this small, nimble company, was able to take an idea that we had and help us work together and actually create something out of whole cloth, sort of. It's essentially a product that's built on an existing chassis. So it's built on this little thing. This is called the, uh, why am I drawing a blank here? This is called the Portcaster. So we basically took this chassis and a lot of the circuitry in it and iterated on it and then came up with something unique. And that's, and that's what the, uh, the Passport VO is. And I think the things that really make it truly unique are the mix minuses. We love talking about mix minuses. Um, this thing has numerous mix minuses already hardwired into it. And so this is like, I feel like this is the perfect talent box because if you ship it out to somebody for doing a field, uh, a field reporting thing or guesting on a show and you preset all the recessed switches in the correct places, this has a minimum number of controls to confuse them and screw up the broadcast. It has a dedicated actual mic mute hardware switch, which so many gear, so many pieces of gear in this size and, and this type of design do not. And it also has a separate comms circuit. So let's say you're, you're running a Windows a machine, especially, but even a Mac machine, and you want to have a separate bus just for record and another bus for communications. This has that. So it's got two independently different USB audio interfaces internally that show up as two drivers. So when you plug them into your machine, it shows up as two devices, one for recording and one for communications. And it completely removes confusion as to what you should use for what and handles all the mix minuses, the playback loops, all that stuff is handled, uh, handled for you. So we really wanted to remove the absolute frustration that, that talent actors, voice actors deal with in a in a hot seat situation right a lot of the gear that we love and we talk about on the show just like the zooms and the task cams and the sound device stuff 
is our technological tour de forces. They're firmware driven. They can be updated and upgraded. This is really like flipping that. This is the yin to those products, yang, or, or my favorite, the Apollo. <laughs> this thing is designed to be the opposite of that in terms of the features are locked, but it's, it's refined. And uh, we really like, we really like our actors to have something that's not going to make them really break out in a flop sweat during a live recording session. Uh, Jeffrey, you had a question about it? Actually, I have two questions. It looks really nice. I, I like it a lot. Uh, first question is, do, can, can you separate the audio between the two people? And then the second question is, uh, why is there only one set of meters instead of two, if you can separate those audios? Yeah, so you know, when, when we designed this thing along, of course, with Mike, Mike Goodman from Centrance, because we were trying to, to get it done without a year or two of iterations and we wanted to do it relatively quickly, we were restricted to the form factor of the chassis. And the form factor of the chassis, the parts bin, the things that were available, having a single VU meter is really what we had room for. And honestly, because its primary thing is recording really single channel, that's its primary goal. It only needs one meter because we're only monitoring one mic at a time and that one AD circuit, that one channel going to AD converter. Its secondary functionality is actually recording two microphones. So you can choose to record mic one, mic two to two separate tracks, which would be more like a podcasting situation or maybe a field, field recording situation. And there's a little switch on the bottom of the unit. You see that array of jacks and switches. It's called the record channel two source. And now you can choose what you're actually recording to channel two. And that could be a minus 12 dB padded safety track. It could be just mic two, or it could be the return from the comms bus. So now you're recording what's coming back from Zoom at all. And so that's more of like a, 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 an interviewer's device or a podcaster's device. So that's, that's the why it's designed this way. We squeezed in as much as we could physically fit to uh, to the form factor. Two VU meters would be nice. One really good one we thought was more important. And I understand there was a limited run of these, so it's not like you're you're going to be able to wait two years and then maybe find it. Or what, what's the circumstance with that? The circumstance is Centrance again being the small, nimble company. They like to produce in batches. Um, they don't do huge runs and. Frankly, we had to sell to Michael, the owner, we had to sell him on the idea that this thing should exist. Like he didn't see that there was a market for it. He, we came to him and said, we really believe there is something, a market for this. And um, so and, and basically we're, we're doing our own sort of Kickstarter, right? The difference between what we're doing and a Kickstarter is with Kickstarters and, and all that, you're donating money to a company, right? You're just hoping the thing comes to fruition. In this case, you're pre-ordering, you're going into this, this lot of 100 people, and that money is, is internally getting this product started. It's getting the ball rolling so we can get it into production. Once that 100 units ships out in the fall um, and is in the real world, it's no longer vaporware, then those products will become made available in larger numbers. So... That's essentially why it's being sold in this limited number. And we've been doing it for about three or four weeks. We're trying to end the campaign. We're 20 units away. <sighs> I don't want to be salesy about it, but that's kind of why that's, that's what this thing is all about. If there are any other questions about it, if you want to move on, that's fine too. Well, Courtney, how's one Courtney? 
what is it? Is it a bit level? Is it 32 bit? Is it 24 bit? What's its uh, A to D converter? Good question. Because it is built on legacy technology that they've been baking into their their last couple of products, it's still a 24 bit 96K uh, converter. Um, 32 bit is definitely like the hot hotness right now. I've, I've been playing around with 32 bit and it's cool, but this is a little bit more traditional, which is also why that second safety channel at minus 12 DB, where it basically inserts a pad between the preamp and the AD converter is nice because if you are doing like uh let's say you're doing a home record of a video game character and you're really occasionally running into that clip zone, um, you you do have a secondary protected track to to deliver at, just in case, but yeah, no thirty two bit yet. And does it what do, do any in, and sorry and does it do yep. any uh, internal recording or is it just an interface? This one is just an interface. Again, it was a packaging issue because we wanted all these additional mix minuses and additional features. We couldn't squeeze the recorder into this one. So essentially, if you want to uh, really have a backup and run a backup. I would, in my case, I would have one record USB going to my primary system and my other USB going to a secondary system, which could even be a phone. Um, so you could literally have your phone plugged in as a backup recorder um, and record a secondary track. So that's sort of how we're handling the backup recording. We don't have the internal recorder. I just want to take issue with you because voice talent never yell in the booth, do they? Never, ever. They don't. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you should, I, I, so we, I was at a, a VO Atlanta and I watched one of my uh, voice actor clients um, doing battle chatter, which is in a video game where you're really, really going for it. Uh, you go from, let me tell you something, I got to get this thing going. And then you have, you go full throttle. You, your dynamic range as an actor in voiceover in, in video games can be 30, 40, 50 decibels, even more. So, um, yeah, it happens. <laughs> Clipping happens. <laughs> I've, I've been there and done that. No, scream it louder, said the guys behind the glass. <laughs> Let's go to anyway, the next. Thank you. thank you, George. It really looks interesting. Let's go Thanks. to the next question. George Whittem in Venice. Sorry. Um, California writes in, is there a place in the market for purpose-made audio gear for non-technical talent? And what would you like to see? Oh, that may have been, uh, well, Javier, that may have been a... A little bit of a Fenwick there, or not Fenwick? Yeah, that was a bit of a softball. That was a Fenwick. Yeah. Well, I I definitely think there there is a space for uh, purpose audio built that like tools that are not uh, uh, for the technical people, but they'll stick using it all the time. I think it happened. It happened with computers like 50 years ago. Computers were like only for specialized people. And now everyone has a computer in their pocket. And the same thing happened with cameras. Now we have there were like pro cameras and there were like this film cameras where you couldn't do anything with them. And now we have like iPhones that are consumer facing that they have autofocus and you can even move like the exposure and all of that. And I think audio is somewhere between the point and shoots and uh, we're not still getting to the iPhone level where you can control some things and leave others. So, for example, a, a microphone that could, when you turn it on, it will ask you, like, be silent. I'm going to take a, 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 a reading of your room. Okay, that's the reading. Now, talk softer, talk medium, talk higher. That It, it, it helps the, the talent, like, to do the noise, uh, how's the, the noise floor in the, in the quiet room, what are your levels. And even if you have, like, an up-directional mic, 
and you don't have to worry if you point it in the right direction. The the you can maybe with an AI or some kind of like difference knows like okay the people is speaking from the front, so I'm going to use that as the front of the cardioid, and I'm using the like those sort of like quick decisions that an audio engineer does, but can be automated. I mean, not a hundred percent, but maybe for a sixty percent, it will help a lot because every time that I talk to a a friend, a client, or someone like to get their Zoom levels, sorry, their Zoom game, like with correct levels and all of that. When I start speaking, like you get a, a, a an interface, they're like the, the, their eyes glaze over. They're like, "What an audio interface?" No, and, and and even like plug and play mics, they're like, "Okay, but how do I set the gain? How do I know if my 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 uh, my room is noisy?" All of those decisions. I think we're some steps that would need to take in that direction. And I think there is a niche because uh, everyone is having like two, three, four hours of Zoom sessions and good microphones will help everyone. So from talent that wants to record things to people that just want to talk. So I think there is a lot of, 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 of where we can go for audio dedicated tools, not for technical people. This reminds me of the words small batch. If it's good for bourbon, why isn't it good for gear? Let's George, what George, you heard next. <laughs> so, like, you know, when when the talking about the passport very quickly, when we looked at it, we looked at features that were gonna benefit a smaller audience rather than a generalized thing. And so when we talk about specializing product, it's really about putting the things in that are gonna benefit this this very narrow use case. Now, we've started realizing the narrow use case is wider than we thought because it could be a field broadcast, it could be a talent pod, or it can be uh, it can be a podcaster's tool beyond being voiceover. But, you know, this is what we're talking about when we talk about hardware that's purpose built. The other thing that he's talking about which is completely valid too is what I call what I would really think of as computational audio. You know, the Apple products do an incredibly good job with computational photography as well as Samsung and really all the smartphones. Audio is still in its infancy. Um, I was doing an interview the other day where I was hoping that my iPhone would want to listen to the interview subject on the front of the camera, but because there was so much background noise and I had spoken at the person interviewing viewing them, the iPhone didn't know who was actually the one to listen to. And it was it was switching its directionality between the talent in front of the camera and the noise behind me. And in the end, I couldn't, the audio was unusable, right? So you can't always, the, I, the, the smartness of the system can't always outsmart the real world. Um, and that was a torture test. But yeah, computational audio definitely needs to trickle down to the masses, I think, for sure. Let's, uh, Courtney and Jeffrey, really quick, and then we're going to move on. So we got a lot of questions this morning. Courtney? Awesome. Sorry, sorry to bunt on this softball, but, uh, you know, the thing that, uh, as far as the question goes, is there is a purpose built, uh, I mean, audio equipment is getting simpler to operate. There are a number of 32-bit uh, recorders on the market, like just like the Zoom F2 here. It's got one record button on it, no level controls to set the level, plugs in a microphone, you hit the button, and it records 32-bit float file. It's easy to use. The consumer, it's hit one button and record distortion-free audio that you can deal with later in post to clean up backgrounds, etc. Deity also makes a brand new one that does that. And uh, Tascam and Tentacle also make one-button recorders that now people can just carry on their person with a lavalier microphone or a handheld microphone and hit one button and record and not worry about if it's distorting or if it's uh, too low a level or if there's too much background noise because they can deal with that. They can record a clean recording 
uh, and uh, deal with it all in post uh, without having to worry about distortion or level setting or gain staging, any of that stuff. Jeffrey? So last week we had a question about how uh, how uh, offices and uh, especially people that uh, that don't know the technical uh, can get audio and video from their desktop, and I, I put some some thought into this. And what I'd like to see is an actual you know little uh, little robot type thing that uh, comes through and and will actually come in, bring in a microphone, set it down in front of the uh, person, and then maybe temper the room. But uh, most most likely, I'd like to see a microphone kind of on the same lines of Lytra, or not Lytra, but uh, Lytro, that was it. The, uh, it was a camera that had like several different lenses to it. And when you took a picture, you took, you took many pictures, and that way you could focus in and focus out in certain areas. So I'd love to see a microphone that has a similar audio ability to it that the audio gets recorded on the microphone. Uh, the unit could then be remote controlled. Uh, the settings could be set up remotely by a by somebody uh, not in the office. And then, of course, the microphone could be moved by a mechanical arm to get into the spot of the person. We're not talking video. We're just talking on the audio side. And then be able to record and then disappear from there go to the next office and do the same thing. That would be a great item to have. Okay, we just need the engineering. Uh, next question. Javier Alfaro in Mexico City writes in, I'm upgrading my Mac and I'm torn between an M1 Max Mac Studio and an M2 Mac Pro Mini. Which would be more future-proof? More future-proof? Depends. If you're going to grow your business, probably the Studio's got a lot more I.O. available than the Minis, but uh, they'd both work. Jason, you had a quick thought? Yeah, this really, it's not even the value of a dollar. It's a matter of the value of a dollar to you. The the studio is going to be faster. The IO is slightly more robust than even the M2. Um, and the benefits for the M2, um, even including the increased speed that they, they added to the, the memory, it's still not going to eclipse the studio. Now, if you can't afford or don't want to afford a studio, um, then it's not an option. But yeah, those are my thoughts. Next question. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado writes in, what do I need to add to my signal chain with an A10 Mini Pro, a five-inch monitor with HDMI in uh, and out to a Samsung SSD drive? I want to record video from the A10. And Courtney, can you do a minute for us? Uh, I would go with something bigger than a five-inch monitor. Uh, you're you're pretty much set there. You just have your SSD drive will plugged in the USB out, and it'll the ATEM uh, will record um, a the mix out or the single program out, but it won't record ISOs out unless you go with the ATEM Mini Pro ISO. Uh, I would get you a bigger uh, monitor. These portable uh, monitors that are 15-inch. Flat panel display. They're tiny. They're tiny and thin and lightweight, and they're about one hundred and twenty-five dollars. And take the output of the ATEM, the multi-view output of the ATEM, and go into the HDMI input on one like this. Because if you take uh, the multi-view output, if you're using that for monitoring the output of your ATEM, those tiny little squares on the multi-view are really tiny on a five-inch monitor. Thank you. Uh, next question. 
Todd Mueller in Germantown, New York, writes in, want to upgrade my main system and editing display. Want something great, but don't want to spend $6,000 on the Apple Pro display and stand. Anything up to 32 inches and uh, about 2500 bucks for an ATEM 2ME Extreme ISO, mostly 1080p production studio. Courtney, start us off. Uh, Sony makes a pretty good, you know, you don't want to go up to the Sony Pro level because then you're talking $25,000. But they do make some like this LMD series, the B240 to 24-inch full HD IPS LCD for about uh, $2,200. has SDI and HDMI inputs on it. So uh, if you're going to be moving into the professional world and want to monitor SDI, uh, 3G SDI, uh, standard, I mean, uh, high def but not 4K, uh, that's one for you. And there's also, uh, another one, the Feel World makes another one that's a little bit cheaper than the Sony. Uh, that is the uh, Feel World 21.5 4K. It says 4K HDMI. That's the input. I think the actual resolution of the display is just 1080p IPS display. But it's more of a professional type monitor for uh, signal monitoring and broadcast and so on. But it's not a color grading monitor. So to get up into the color grading monitors, you're going to have to spend a whole lot more money. Yeah, absolutely. Jason? Um, I don't want to detract from anything Courtney said because I like all of those options. Um, a best all-around monitor, if you're not going to plug in um, the ATEM directly and instead are going to be using this as a computer, I've got to say the um, the Thunderbolt display for from Apple that's like $1,200, $1,500 is pretty solid. It is very hard to beat as far as the way that it sounds. The camera is not amazing, but it's not terrible. The color is pretty good. It'll go into reference grade. And, of course, if you end up finding yourself wondering if you can get away with going a little bit cheaper, please get a colorimeter, and that'll solve a lot of your initial problems. Yeah. Uh, Jeffrey? So uh, Dell's, uh, on the consumer side, Dell is, is a top monitor maker, uh, so you can check into that. I also saw some really cool stuff that uh, ViewSonic is coming out with. Uh, it should be, should be coming out right about now, so check out what they've got for their offerings. Uh, and they've got some uh, great stuff that is color graded, uh, so you could just plug it in and, uh, and use it. So if you're in the Apple world, I will also note that Apple's managed color pipeline is kind of in their in-house way of keeping color consistent all the way through. It's one of the reasons that I always check my work on some sort of eye device, because I know that if it's right on there, it's going to be right on all the other de uh, devices that are similar out there. So um, it's just one more factor to think about. Next question. Tommy Chance in St. Paul, Minnesota writes in, got this in my mailbox yesterday. Wish I could go, but I have to work. It's a link. This is not a drill film. I'm thinking they might do a good job. Just a heads up. I've never heard of them. That's interesting. He got something in his mailbox. I didn't have time to check out the links. And we should probably just mention that the earlier you get your questions in in the morning when we come in, we do the first hour and we do tend to look at all of the links that people send us in the beginning of the show so that we are more informed about what they're specifically talking about. Jeffrey, did you have any experience with this? Yeah. So basically what's happening is they're doing a live performance in Prague and they're, they've got uh, theater show times that you can go to. You got to figure out where your theater is going to be showing that. And then you can get together and watch the, uh, watch the show from the theater, which um, it's, of course, it's trying to get people back in the theaters, but uh, there's going to be a lot of people that would wouldn't just stay at home because they have better theater systems than what the uh, theaters can offer. 
uh, to hear a sound experience like this. So uh, we'll see. We'll see how it works. Yeah, I actually went to one of those. I went to see Brandy Carlisle uh, at the local multi-megaplex, and it was really an interesting experience. They did the live broadcast from Los Angeles, from up in the mountains and the hills above, and uh, it was a very satisfying experience. I've kind of felt that it's as close to getting to a concert remotely as I could find. Uh, there'll be more of that in the future. Let's move to the next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, Courtney, you mentioned archiving movies on film because of its long lifespan. As the industry advances, do you think there will be concerns about finding qualified people who know how to work with film, projectionists, telecine operators, etc.? Courtney? Uh, I think there will always be, uh, you know, because telecine operators and digitizers, basically, that can take something that's visual in the real world. And that's one of the reasons that film has been seen as a long-term storage. If you store something digitally, you're storing it in a digital format that has to be decoded before you can even tell what it is. You, you don't know if it's it a sound, is it a picture, is it a mathematical chart? You don't know what it is until you decode it. And if it's a dead format, uh, you may not have people around or the equipment around to decode that and put it back into a form that humans can understand. However, film, you can pick it up, hold it up to light, and look at it with your own eyes without any external device to translate it. And then if you can look at it, there are going to be external devices that can translate it into whatever, whatever format for viewing is at that moment in history. So that's why uh, something that you can physically interpret with your own senses is a good form of archiving uh, because it doesn't require any intermediate translation into another format in order for you to see it. So I don't think uh, something like that that you can perceive with your own senses is going to disappear uh, as fast as we change formats of, you know, we've gone from digital video, analog video to digital video to file-based video to LTE, long-term digital storage tape. All those have been used for archiving, but they've all become obsolete in a short period of time. I think it'll always be around just for the nostalgia factor. It, it kind of reminds me a little bit in, in decades in the future. I think it'll be a little bit like reenactors. You know, they love that era. They want to hold on to it. They are passionate about it. Uh, the the actual chemical consistency of film was actually pretty toxic, the silver nitrates and stuff like that. So I don't think it's ever going to be a big rush back into that kind of technology because it was pretty hard to deal with. But I, great film is great, and I'm so glad we went through that era have some beautiful work that was done by really imaginative and fabulous technicians. Uh, so I don't. I hope personally that it never goes entirely away. Next question. Uh, Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia writes in, I now have a Scarlet Solo. Should I switch it in my setup for the Zoom H6? George Whittem. I don't know. And the reason I don't know is because I have absolutely no idea what you need that the Scarlet doesn't already do, right? So it depends on the features you need, depends on your use case, how many channels, uh, processing on board. There's a lot of there's a lot of I don't know things. If it's just sound quality wise, I don't think you're gonna hear any difference in quality at all in the preamps and converters going from the Zoom H6 or going from the Scarlet to the H6 with condenser microphones. Um, maybe if you're using a dynamic mic, you need a little more gain. I think the Zoom's gonna give it to you. But yeah, without a lot more detail, it's a really tough question to answer. Courtney, yeah, if you're not going for the handheld uh, part of the uh the H6, um, 
The H in the Zoom series stands for handheld. They're designed to be handheld recorders, and a lot of them have microphones that clip on the end of them. Uh, the F series, if you're not going to be using it as a handheld recorder, the F series has better preamps if you're going to be hooking up external microphones of your own into it. The F series, uh, better battery handling, more professional work, has time code built in, has auto mix built in, and uh, has better preamps. So I'd go with an F series over an H series as long as you're not going to use it as a single handheld device with a microphone on the end. Let's go to the next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, uh, George, you mentioned that the uh, PA Sport VO is iPhone compatible. Where have you seen users using an iPhone for field production versus an iPad? I'd be concerned about the session interrupted by a call or a text. I have had really bad uh, luck using iOS for audio in the field. Um, man, we tried to use it at NAMM last year. We had to, at the last minute, scrap it and literally build a camera rig. We could have easily shot all of NAMM with an iPhone uh, 12 Pro Max or whatever we had. No problem. But we just couldn't guarantee that the iPhone would take the audio from the I, the lightning port and feed that into the app we were using. There was absolutely no control over it whatsoever. And I implore you, Apple, if you're going to sell a product with the word pro in the name, make it something a pro can actually use and rely on because that's it drove us nuts it burned me as well at another event where i was using a uh, a video mic go to by rode which is designed to plug into an iphone and i tested it configured it did all the things that the rode rep said you should do i had six videos uh, because it was run and gun and i had very little time i had six videos with no audio so uh, my experience in personally in doing field work with ios devices has been very negative but that's because I've been using it in ENG, kind of like I don't have time to mess around. If you have time to go out and collect field audio, uh, wild tracks or whatever you're doing, and you have a lot of time to experiment, test, do playback, and make sure the audio worked, you might be fine. And uh, yeah, a lot of these devices have an MFI, as long as it says MFI, made for iPhone, printed somewhere on the box, then it will probably be okay. I just, I just had a bad experience. Just had too many bad experiences with iOS and, and Pro Audio. Okay, there you've heard it. Let's go to the next question. Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia writes in, when I move from the iPhone XS Max as a primary camera, I need quality video camera for the field, not considering Blackmagic. Jesse Kester? Uh, I would consider something in the uh, kind of entry-level Sony series. This is the ZV-1, and we use this uh, quite a bit out in the field. It's a, it's a really nice transition camera from something like an iPhone to a, you know, closer to a DSLR or something like that. There's also the ZV-1F, which is a, a fixed focal length. I think it's like a 20 or 24 millimeter equivalent for that camera. But I feel like that would be a good, a good middle step between um, iPhones and Blackmagic's. Okay, we are practically at the top of the hour now, which means that we are going to be switching in just a moment to our second hour discussion of uh, ambisonic sound. Right now, though, I want to just touch on two little things. Tomorrow here on the show, we are doing the five basics of video content creation. This is for people who are interested in working in uh, the, the visual content field or just want a kind of an overview of there are at least five little areas. And this is a talk I've done a couple of times before we break down into pre-production, the three technical things 
things, camera work, audio work, and uh, editing, and then the post-production process. We're going to be talking through all of those and answering your questions about all of those tomorrow on the show. Uh, not tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow on the show uh, during our standard regular thing. Uh, I also wanted to note that on uh, Friday, Epifan is going to be here. That's going to be the... Uh, the subject of what we're doing, Epifan Connect, their collaboration with Zoom and their cloud tools and edge devices. So that is going to be interesting. And we've got a bunch of other stuff coming up. But now is time for our Wednesday special guest and uh, kind of translation into the audio world. We try to talk about audio-related topics and concentrate on that every Wednesday. And we're really excited because Jeff Francis, our old friend, I, has popped up into there. Uh, one of our audio gurus, been around the show for a long time and does a ton of work in this area. Jeff, good morning. Good to see you. Good morning. Thanks to uh, all the behind-the-scenes crew who uh, got me fast-tracked through the pipeline. Uh, I had to show up late today, but I'm glad to be here. Uh, so we're going to talk about ambisonics, um, which is a crazy, uh, not new method of uh, surround sound. Um, really looks at sound as equally from all directions, 360 degrees. So it kind of looks at sound as a as a a point in space and how sound gets to that point, both in magnitude, because that's what sound does. It gets louder and softer and it's pressure waves that change uh, positive and negative, but also what direction it is coming from. And it treats, uh, unlike sort of what we think of as like normal surround 5.1, where we think about the horizontal plane as primary and we have the front and the back. Um, and now with uh, things like spatial audio and Atmos, we've been adding ceiling channels and even some of the 360 systems add channels that are below the horizontal plane. Ambisonics treats every direction equally. So it thinks about just 360 degrees all around you. And uh, Ambisonics is both a format and then it is also, there are Ambisonic microphones. And so Ambisonic microphones can be used in standard production and things can get produced in ambisonics. Um, so probably the easiest way I think of at coming at ambisonics is thinking of it as sort of a three-dimensional MS mic technique. So let's go back and think about what MS mic technique is. Um, so MS is a stereo technique. All stereo mic techniques, the basic ones, coincident uh, XY, coincident MS, and uh, near coincident space, I'll use two microphones. MS is a strange one because it doesn't have a left microphone and a right microphone. It has a mid microphone, which as you imagine would be pointed center, mid. And then it has a side microphone that points sideways. And that side microphone is a bi-directional microphone. So it actually picks up the left and the right sides of things. Uh, somewhere I have a nice little picture of an MS mic somewhere here. Let me throw that up so y'all can see that. Uh, no, not the panel. And so an MS mic is really the two-dimensional uh, sort of horizontal-only version of this. So here's an MS arrangement of a cardioid mid mic and a bi-directional side mic. And so this would be used all the time in standard stereo recording. And what we do with it is we actually steer uh, by combining these two microphones. And you see that the, the positive polarity lobe of the 
bi-directional facing left, everything that's on the left side will get to these two mics in the same polarity. And everything that's on the right side will be sort of canceled because they're opposite polarity. And then we invert the side mic in order to get uh, the right channel. So that's a way that we use that to steer. Well, what a ambisonics system does is it really looks at all of this in three dimensions. So we get uh, four of these. And there's a lot of different formats that we'll talk about in Amazonics, but the most important one right here is that what's considered a B format. All right, so this little picture is probably going to take a little bit to get your mind around. But if you look at the thing that's labeled W, which is a dashed uh, little line there, that's that's just a circle. And that's represents doesn't always exist in this in the real world, but it represents an omnidirectional microphone. So that's going to pick up just the pressure that's happening there. And then you have three bi-directional microphones. So they are the three axes. So if you're used to, you know, an, an XY coordinate and then an XYZ plane, you have uh, the uh, X being the front and rear. So we have a bi-directional that faces forward. And then we have a bi-directional that faces left and right. And then we have another one that faces up and down. So we have three microphones, but we have really the concept here in amb ambisonics is that we have three vectors that are giving us three-dimensional uh, direction. Where is the sound arriving at this point? Where is it coming from? Um, so that's the basics of ambisonics is that it looks at a point in space and it tries to capture the pressure change that's happening there and what direction that pressure change is coming from. So that's ambisonics as a thought, and you see that it's exactly equal in all dimensions. Um, you'll hear terms like orthogonal, which just means right angles to each other. So the left is right angle to the front, and it's right angle to the up-down. And the front is right angles to the left-right. The front-rear is right angles to the left-right and to the up-down. And the up-down is right angles to the front-rear and the left-right. They're all right angles to each other, and that gives us three directions. So a standard ambisonics, what ambisonics people would call first order, is just four signals. Zero order is the really simple mono omnidirectional mic that gets placed and it picks up sound that's changing in one point in space. And then that is just that, but it has no spatialization, it has no panning, it has no idea about where sound's coming from. And then when we go and we add the other three microphones, so here we see a front-back, an up-down, and a left-right bi-directional mic, that gets us to what's called first-order ambisonics, and that's those four channels. Now, there are higher orders of ambisonics, and I'm going to hold off on that for a minute while we talk about just this. Um, so that's ambisonics as a concept, and that can be stored, it can be captured. We'll talk about the microphone and how we actually get to those, because if you can imagine, you've tried probably to make an MS, and it's pretty hard to get two microphones at the same point in space, because they have physical space and they jam into each other, so you can't get them perfectly coincident. Getting four microphones at the same point in space is physically impossible. We can't jam all of these microphones together. So... The actual microphone is captured in a different way and then is processed to get this B format, but B format is commonly what is stored and manipulated. And the great thing about this ambisonics is once we have it, 
it's very easy in our software to rotate that four channel signal. We can spin it left and right and up and down, pitch and yaw, however we want. And so this is a natural uh, technique for VR because it's very easy to do head tracking and have this entire ambisonics, which is four channel signal that captures the 360 degrees in space as a way to spin that as the head spins in a VR system. So it's very common for VR um, audio to be stored in an ambisonics format because it's very simple to spin it. Um, but then we get into lots of ways to actually make out of this, like we did with MS, we make virtual microphones. So MS, we combine that, that mid mic and the side mic, we get a left facing mic and a right facing mic, and that gives us stereo. Well, the same thing with our ambisonics mic is we can combine these in various ways and make virtual microphones and we can make as many of those as we want. Um, I'm going to kind of stop there and kind of like head into a little discussion and see if anybody on the panel or we want to grab any questions before we move on to other things. I know this is a lot to swallow. <laughs> yeah, Courtney uh, had one. <laughs> Courtney? Well, maybe uh, maybe I'm speaking on a turn here and jumping forward. But when you look at the uh, the arrangement of the elements on ambisonic mics like this uh, Rode Sound NTSF1, you see that the front, back, and up, down are tilted nine, uh, 45 degrees to those axes to record uh, this ambisonic. And, and it doesn't seem to have a capsule for doing the Omni. Does it generate all those uh, uh, using a matrix of uh, adding and subtracting the inputs from those mics that are set at a 45 degree axis to up and down and left and right? Yeah, so the... Like I said, you can't physically put the four microphones in the same point in space. So what they'll do is they'll use a uh, tetrahedral arrangement. And tetrahedral is just a fancy word for a four-sided figure. So you know, you, you think about the, the pyramids in Egypt and you think, oh yeah, they got four sides. No, actually they have five because there's a square on the bottom. So the tetrahedron is a four equal triangles. And this gives you that that mic that you see. So what we end up here with is these uh, left, right, left front up, right back up, right front down, and left back down. Boy, that sounds really confusing. But you can see that on these various microphones that we have. And these are subcardioid. So they're not omnis. They're not cardioids. They're in between an omni and a cardioid, but they're subcardioids. And there's four of them that face in these various directions. And that's how basically uh, Soundfield was the first people that did this. And they discovered this was the way that we could get four microphone capsules as close as possible. And these are what's called A format. That's actually where they began. And that's decoded into that B format. So the one you see on the right is actually the Ambio, the Sennheiser Ambio mic. And that's what they used at uh, NAB to capture and that goes into software to decode it into the ambisonics form. In practical use, is, does this require a lot of decoding to be functional in a post world or can you work in a field with something like this and do it on the fly? You can't, the, the microphone, the four capsule signals, you know, the, the microphone is in one like a stereo mic, it's in one shell, but you actually have four XLRs that come out of it. And those four XLRs are these funny front, left, up, 
right back down. So they don't really point anywhere that you find useful. So those four need to get processed and converted into the ambisonics format. If you're going to leave it in the ambisonics format, which you can listen to in various speaker arrays, or it can be played in a, in a headphone only binaural system. And we'll probably talk about that a little bit. Um, but usually if we're going to go into production, we're going to go and we're going to do some kind of processing to that. And so, um, let me flip over and see if my Pro Tools session is live here. One moment, and we'll, I'll show you. Uh, so, Rode makes a microphone that is um, ambisonics, and it is those four capsules. And it comes out to this funny-looking software. So... You see up at the top, I can choose where it's coming from. And I don't know if you can read that, but that very top one says uh, that's the NT-SF1. That is Rhodes model microphone. Um, or either of the two competing ambisonic formats. And we can talk about that if we so desire. Um, and then you see the four signals of the microphone. And below that, you get positioning. So I can take, this is a four input to single output. So I'm taking the four capsules of the microphone. Uh, there's a plug-in ahead of this that converts those from the four capsule signals into the ambisonics, uh, what they call WXYZ. W being the omni, X, Y, and Z being the three orthogonal, the, the front, back, the left, right, the up, down vectors. And so you see those are the, the input levels there. And then you get the ability to take that virtual signal and turn where you want it to be in three dimensions. And you can also change the polar pattern of the microphone. So this is a software decode of that. And I'm going to flip my audio system over here. All right, give me somebody give me a thumbs up. You can still hear me. I can you. still hear you. Um, You're in good shape. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to play a little something here, which uh, you can hear, but I can't unless I put on another set of headphones. So you can probably hear as I move this microphone around that I can move and the graphic gives you a lovely visual of the sound. I'm going to go back and do this after I explain what's going Unfortunately, on. Unfortunately, I don't think you're getting a stereo feed to us. It, if anybody else can verify that or not. But I just put on my headphones. I would, I'd heard the chimes the first time in mono. sounded so dead down the middle, mono. So, yeah. I'm hearing a mono mix. This is mono at the moment, because remember, this is one channel being decoded out of there. Later, we'll ah. move to, to stereo. So this is one microphone. But notice that I currently have it set to a bi-directional microphone. So I want you to hear the, the fall off as I turn the microphone and the, the source, 
right? This is all recorded ahead of time. This is not yeah. live. Um, this is a playback, but that source, I can move the microphone basically 90 degrees off axis and you'll hear the sound go off axis. Now you're just messing with my brain. So now I'll set it to something closer to a cardioid. Can you show us sorry, on the screen again? There we go. Perfect. Yep, sorry about that. It's okay. Again, this is a bi-directional. They are basically turned the bi-directional round, so it's coming in the back side. This is sort of like the light field camera of audio recording. Sorry, the which field camera? So there were these cameras called the light, I think it was a light field camera, where you yeah, can focus it in post, because it's capturing all focus length, focus depths at the same time, and then you can focus in post. This is kind of like that, where you decide in post exactly how the microphone is hearing and what the listener gets to hear. It's pretty mind-blowing. Is this maybe the same technology they use in some of those microphone modeling circumstances where you can dial up more cardioid, more omni? Just way more. Most complex. of the mic modeling is uh, based on impulse response to change the tonality of it, but there are a few ah. mic models that use a couple of capsules in the element, and they capture both of those, so they actually allow you to change polar patterns. Interesting. Um, so now what we have is you can, with that same software, you can choose how many channels you want to decode into. Mm. So this is now decoding into stereo. We got stereo. And I could freely choose the polar pattern of my stereo, the width of my stereo, and the orientation of it, both horizontally and vertically. That's awesome. Very cool. <laughs> That's great. So and the that, fidelity over Zoom is good enough to really get a good impression of what that sounds like. Well, thank you, Alex, and all the work in the back-end crew of making this as good a Zoom cast as is humanly possible in the audio sense. This is partially why all that effort is put in so that you can hear the results.
Very so impressive. once you've decoded once from those four capsules, you can decode another time as I did with the stereo and you can decode as many times as you want to 5.1 or seven, well, not dot one, but five channels around and seven channels around. And you could do seven, four, you could have four ceiling channels and point virtual microphones wherever you desire. So they can go, your center channel could be center and your left and right could be 45 degrees off to the left or 30 degrees off to the left. And your, your height channels could be 45 degrees left and 45 degrees up and continuing around. You could decode as many times as you want from those four signals. Now, the limitation being all of those virtual microphones that you created are all from the same point. So as people who do music and stereo recording, this is a completely coincident technique and it never gets beyond that from one ambisonics microphone. So you've only got one point that you've captured, but you can decode it however you desire. So it's not uncommon as they did for the NAB. They took this four channel ambisonics signal off the microphone and decoded it to five channels to create surround. Um, and the choices of microphone that you get are anywhere of the what are called the first order cardioids and those are the common microphones that we're used to so omni to subcardioid to cardioid to hyper and supercardioid to bidirectional any of those combinations are possible um, ambisonics does go up into higher what they call orders so there are higher order uh, ambisonics um, looking back at these little funny squiggles we saw okay y'all should be seeing that now um yes we saw first order was just an omni second order was an omni with the three bi-directionals at least that's the concept we're not doing that in the microphone we have to decode to get those three signals going beyond that uh goes into what is called spherical harmonics um, the, I'm, I was a math minor. I love math. Uh, this is math way beyond me to get to these, but you can see adding five additional signals down there that are these funny looking shapes. And, uh, the two different colors are polarity. Um, and so as you go into higher orders, you actually get higher definition of localization. And if you're creating virtual microphones, you can get narrower polar patterns. Um, and Amazonic goes well on up and we continue to add these funny things each time you, you know, so first order is the standard Amazonics that requires four channels. Second order requires nine channels. Third order requires 16 channels of storage. You go on and on. If you go to seventh order, you're going to require 64 channels of storage for one or processing for one Amazonics signal. So it does become, uh, requires a lot of channels of processing and storage, but it does give you um, better definition of that. So, so as a practical that, matter, I, I just a quick question, Jeff, as a practical yeah. matter, I used to think, oh, the audio is going to be simple to store and, and take with my video files. The video files are going to be gigantically bigger. I'm starting to see that that possibility is getting smaller and smaller, that I may need to consider storage for my audio as we move into these things kind of in parity with video it could be now we don't have 
like we don't have a a B format microphone, we can't do three bidirectionals and an omni at the same point. So we use this funny A format um, to create and store uh, Amazonic's first order, which we have to convert. Um, there are higher order microphones. Uh, let's see if we can show this guy. So these have multiple capsules um, and um, need specialized software for decoding. And usually the manufacturer also includes calibration. So uh, what you see on the left is core sound and they use, that's a fairly inexpensive microphone. I think they're, they're uh, four channel ambisonic standard A format mic is about a thousand dollars. And this, uh, I think, is under two thousand. Uh, but then they do give you um, they measure each mic and they give you calibration. So you have to go through their software to basically compensate for the inaccuracies of the capsules because the better match they are, the better ambisonics you get. Um, the middle one from uh, Zylia, I think, is seventeen or nineteen microphones that gets decoded. So that's uh, uh, comes out USB, and so you don't get control over your preamps or your conversion. Uh, and I can't remember the last one there. I think that's 64 capsules around that dome that are then being converted into a higher order um, ambisonics signal. And these um, are all uncompressed signals coming out, right? This they, they want as much resolution. Are they 96 kilohertz or something? Yes. The one that uh, the Xylia in the middle is uh, 48 kilohertz only because it, it is your interface as well. Um, but you do want to capture that and store that because this allows you to then spin and manipulate and do all those kinds of things. So decoding ambisonics is just, you know, into this virtual microphone idea is just one of the things that you might do. You can also work with ambisonics um, just with mono sound sources. Um, so let me give you a moment and see if this works. Uh, well, let me show you before we go there, just so you can see the. Yeah, I'm totally well, fascinated. We we have about twelve questions in the back, so I'm just want to make sure that we get everybody's yeah. questions taken care of. But keep going because I'm fascinated with this. So this is the the four channel to five microphone decode. And you see that this is a standard sort of layout of three across the front and two in the rear. But you can adjust each of those however you like, and you can actually change the angles of the fronts to the rears and the center. So there's there's ability to, to do that kind of thing. Um, do you find the Rode software to be one of the easiest ones? The Rode seems to understand UI pretty well. Do you find it? Have you compared it to anything else yet? I've looked at a few others. The road's nice because it's it's free, which is always a good thing uh, <laughs> when you're just experimenting with with this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so what I'm going to try and do now is show you another. This is part of the... So what I have now is a... And I'm going to change the audio over to hopefully get that and turn on original sound. So hopefully you'll get stereo. Yep. So... What I have now is a mono piece of audio. And this mono piece of audio is actually routed to 
a plugin that allows me to convert that into Ambisonics format. And it's basically a, an Ambisonics panner. And this was part of Facebook's 360 software. Um, so this is bringing in a mono input and it's going out to second order Ambisonics. So this is creating nine output channels. Um, and then, so you see here's a piece of audio and that piece of audio comes out to nine channels. I know you can't hear it yet. Um, that comes out to nine channels. And then into a second piece of software that turns that nine channel um, ambisonics into two headphone feeds. So it's basically a binaural representation of the uh, ambisonics signal. It's brokenness. There's a promise and forgetfulness when nothing's left. So first I'll check to make sure you're actually hearing something move in stereo. Yeah, so it's this real. is a mono source. So this is essentially a, a three-dimensional panner. Um, but I'm going from a mono source into nine-channel second-order ambisonics, and that eats up a nine-channel bus in Pro Tools. And then that could then go to a surround sound uh, system if I wanted to output to a 7.1 bus. But in my case, I'm just going down to a stereo binaural signal so everybody can hear it. It's brokenness. There's a promise and forgetfulness when nothing's left. Can I live in this mindlessness? And forgive what is nothingness. There's a promise and forgetfulness. There's something left. Is the reverb we're hearing or the ambient space that she is in something that was captured during the session? Or is this something that's being added in the decoder? Uh, there's a little bit of uh, reverb in this vocal excerpt. Right. It's so part so of the, the stem has part of the mono track. Yeah. In the, in the mono track. Got yeah. It. Okay. There's a Got little it. mono reverb, a little mono delay on there. Okay. But did I, I see some heard. control in the interface if you wanted to add, or uh, obviously not subtract, but add reverb at this stage? Uh, they have room emulation. Okay. Yeah, that's so that's what I was saying. Give you, yeah. 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 So uh, I don't know if you want to jump into yeah, questions if, here and, and absolutely. see Absolutely. Yeah, not, not guaranteeing, you know, this is something I've experimented with a little bit, but, you know, I'm not an expert. Uh, these people, uh, some people get really into this and go, and uh, I'll say about recording, we talked about the fact that these microphones are all coincident. People have experimented with doing spaced ambisonics. So they'll do two ambisonic <laughs> microphones mm -hmm. that are spaced apart, and now you can not only get whatever virtual pattern you want but you also get the spacing and as a as a classical music recording person i love space between my mics because it does give you a lot of uh, spaciousness and and so if you got two of know. these in 64 <laughs> channels you got some calculation to do there and some just choices some decision uh, i did i did read a paper or a glance through a paper where they used uh nine or ten of those uh xilinx uh which have like oh 19 gosh. capsules in them and they space them various distances apart and then and then kind of put them before a group of, of uh, listeners to see which one they liked best. Before Interesting. We, uh, before go we ahead, go on, sorry. can you demonstrate uh, moving that to uh, the position of your test 
to behind us. We moved it left, right in front of us. Can you move it around behind us and see if it's in binaural mode if we get that effect? Can I breathe through the emptiness and believe in this brokenness? There's a promise and forgetfulness when nothing's left. Can I live in this mindlessness and forgive what is nothingness? There's a promise and forgetfulness. So the control I'm using now is an elevation control. Uh, so this control right over here is elevation. Oh, go ahead and show us, show us that. Can again. I breathe through the emptiness and believe in this brokenness? There's a promise and forgetfulness when nothing's left. Can I live in this mindlessness and forgive what is nothingness? There's a promise and forgetfulness. There's something left. Take your AirPods to the movie theater and the axe murderer will creep up behind you and scare you to heck. Oh, yeah. That'll be fun. Anyway, all right, let's get to the questions. I don't want to leave anybody out who's who's put them in so diligently. So, Jason, let's go. You bet. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge writes in, How would you mic a full orchestra, then master and mix the sound uh, for theater-grade Dolby Atmos? Is that question using ambisonics? Um, I would want to at least have a minimum of two ambisonics mics to capture the orchestra, because as I said, uh, a single ambisonics mic's, mic is a coincident mic technique. And so it captures one point in space. And um, while you can capture an orchestra with one coincident technique, you need a really ideal room and space techniques will often uh, help a poor room because you get additional reflections because the mics are not at the same point in space. So they grab those reflections at different times. You know, bouncing off the sidewall gets to the left mic before it gets to the right mic because they're not at the same point. Um, by using several ambisonics microphones, you could um, capture spaciousness and have the ability afterwards to create virtual microphones that point in the direction you want. Um, and I would probably, if it's going to be Atmos, I would additionally want that spaciousness to have a height element to it. So you're now adding uh, ambisonics mics that are raised up above the main pair. Jeffrey, um, very quickly, because I don't want you to go into detail with this, but it, it, are they making recordings that are either from the conductor's point of view, sonically, and or the audience's? Because the proscenium, you're seeing most of the stuff in front of you. As a conductor, I would imagine it's much more left-right. Tends to be more more conductor. Okay, so but, that's kind of the standard. But it's not necessarily that it has to have stuff behind you. Um, it does give you the ability to rotate this very easily. And so... Um, I've seen this in halls, a single ambisonics mic, ambisonic mic is really useful because sometimes you have these shows where there's a group in the center and then very quickly there's a group off to stage right. And so you can actually spin the, the virtual decoding of that, uh, to point to the group that's over to the side. Um, so they can be really useful, um, to, to capture this. Javier, you had a question? Oops, you're muted still. 
Yeah, sorry. Oh. No, I was just adding on what uh, Jeff was saying uh, because he said that if it was uh, recording with Ambisonic, I think if you would, if you don't want to record in Ambisonic and the, the purpose was only do the the Atmos mix, I would uh, go with like traditional, maybe a Deca three, uh, like right in the conductor and decide what's going to be your perspective. If you want to be like immersed inside, like be you are going to be the conductor or you're going to be a bit uh, behind and then add like different space pairs and spot mics and then in, in Atmos do the, the mixing decisions. Um, that's the way I would go uh, if I'm not trying to use Ambisonic just like for Atmos mixing of uh, an orchestra. George, you had a quick comment? Yeah, it seems that you would have to have those mics either in multiple locations or movable. Um, you know, I can I can imagine a crazy future world where there's ambisonic mics for each listener in a, in a space, and they're all uh, on on some sort of a movable arm, and so the listener can choose the POV of where they're listening to the orchestra in that space. Right? I mean, to get silent drones, yeah, silent choo drones. Choosing the mic location in an orchestral hall is a huge part of it, and like getting that perfect spot to get. The exact blend of room ambience, hall ambience, and the orchestra and the balance is is it's a specialty for sure. I have a friend that does recordings of the Carnegie Hall in Carnegie Hall in New York. It's an absolute specialty, and this is just another. This is going to be a new subset of that specialty for sure. Let's move on to the next question because we got a lot, and I want to make sure. Oh, go ahead, Jeff. You're, yeah, definitely. The you don't have to use an ambisonic ambisonic mic to use ambisonics in the mix process. That's so true, right? you could start with regular mono microphones and standard stereo mic techniques and decatree and that kind of thing, and then use what I just showed here in a in an ambisonics panner, and then the output could be Dolby Atmos. So you yeah. don't necessarily have to have an ambisonics mic. You don't have to have an ambisonic, you know, speaker system. It could be a tool that is a a panner along the way. All right. Next question. Aaron Jen Carroll in Flagstaff writes in, how does the workflow of ambisonic sound differ from a standard audio recording? I'm seeing, oh, wait a second, I think we're a little off. I'm seeing one from Jack Rupel first. Oh, that's the orchestra, it just didn't cycle. I'm sorry, Aaron's question. Uh, yeah, how does the workflow of ambisonic sound differ from a standard audio recording? There's the requirement to decode the microphone uh, that's the first thing to get it from its a format into whatever b format you desire and then use that microphone either just purely as ambisonic or converting it to virtual microphones as we said and then if it's going to be output in ambisonics then that will be output to an ambisonics format and that will be usually that's something that goes along with a a VR video or a 360 video where it's it's tracked to the motion of the video that if you turn your head or you know move the 360 video alignment it will spin the ambisonics uh, file to match that sound to the picture George you had a comment yeah, I mean, think about it. if you if you had was it sec was it did you say sixteen channels is for second order representation Whatever nine for number. second and sixteen for third. Yeah, so imagine having a third order breakdown of this ambient uh, uh, ambisonics recording appearing on a console, a traditional audio console. Now you have a single microphone that's giving you sixteen channels on a console that you have to mix. 
those old paradigms are clearly not going to be practical. And using these plugins, these panners that let you that give you a different user interface is going to be clearly a very different workflow from any traditional standard product, you know, mixing technique. That's that's obviously clear. I mean, all these old fader type ways of doing things are just not going to fly, so to speak. <laughs> all right. Next question. George Whittem writes in from Venice, California. Do you see this technology reaching the consumer market or is there too much post-processing slash mixing required to be useful? Yeah, well, as, as, Zoom, as we talked about, I'm like, oh my gosh, can you imagine the typical user making these decisions? Jeff? Uh, Zoom, not the Zoom that we use as a teleconferencing system, but the Zoom who makes the small uh, handheld recorders actually makes an ambisonics zoom um, so they have a 360 video with an ambisonic zoom that's probably how it's going to reach consumers i don't see them dealing with higher orders and using uh, these sorts of plugins uh, it's just the channel count is too high and uh, george was talking about the paradigm console the big problem with something like that is not only the number of channels that you have to get your hands on but keeping them all precisely level matched um, because that's part of the point of Amazonics is that it's equal amongst all those particular channels, especially as you begin to rotate this in 360 degrees, that needs to maintain uh, level across all of those things. Courtney, you had a thought? Yeah, there are. If you look on YouTube, there are a number of um, uh, YouTube channels of enthusiasts, Ambisonic enthusiasts that go out around the world recording different environments in different locations, the birds, the rivers, uh, just ambient sounds of different locales, and then they process them to a binaural uh, format for listening on headphones so that you can uh, kind of immerse yourself in a specific location uh, audio-wise, close your eyes, and... Uh, Put yourself there. And so they, they publish a lot of these. A lot of these are used for relaxation tracks, etc. are available. Fair enough. Let's go on to the next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, how do ambisonics fit within modern immersive audio platforms like Lacoustics, LISA, and Dolby Atmos? Jeff? Uh, again, the I think the primary way they fit in, um, ambisonics capturing with uh, higher order mics is kind of a niche uh, niche recording system, but the tools to do uh, 360 panning, um, that can really fit into to Dolby Atmos. And remember the Dolby Atmos is uh, speaker agnostic, if you will. Um, it's supposed to be able to play over any speaker system and it will, in the playback system, map the bed and the objects to the speaker system that you have. So Amazonics is similar to that in that it is a format that just captures and stores audio. And then whatever speaker system you have, that Dolby Atmos system should play the Ambisonics in the, the proper places. So if you only have a sound bar, it's going to do its best to make it sound like those sounds are coming from where they are. If you have a full 7.1.4 Atmos system, it will use those speakers and place things the best they can be. And next question. Aaron Glenn Carroll in Flagstaff writes in, how do you send ambisonic sound to YouTube? Ooh, Jeff. Uh, I honestly don't know. Haven't 
done that. I mean, you can make 360 YouTube videos and you can incorporate the... Actually, no, I did do that once. We made a uh, 360 video and and panned some uh, Dolby Atmos to it as an experiment. And so the, the YouTube 360 um, captures and stores that in the, the file. Um, how many people are playing that back? That's that's a good question. What percentage of YouTube's viewers are actually worried about 360 and ambisonics? Interesting question, though. I think we'll get more information as things develop. Uh, next question. Bosco Jones in Madison, Indiana writes in, how much processing power is needed for higher level virtual mics? Is this easily done with today's standard processors? Jeff? Yeah, so that Xilinx is just a, um, so that was the one I showed earlier, and I think it's, I can't remember exactly, it's somewhere in the high teens number of mic elements, and it comes off as a uh, third order, so 16 channels as a standard USB interface at 48 kilohertz, 24-bit. Um, the difficult thing about that is if you're going to use multiples of those, now you're dealing with essentially aggregated devices you're basically hooking multiple 16 channel usb interfaces to to your computer or you're recording on separate computers um, i'm worried about sample sync between all of those if you're trying to go beyond um but i i you know that's where kind of things are still developing because while that's certainly not inexpensive and it's got a lot of amazing technology underneath the hood because they have to take those microphones that are on that sphere and decode them into this strange second order. And remember from looking at those pictures of the second order, none of those look like a microphone pattern that any of us have seen. First order, sure, those look like bi-directional mics, but the other ones look like funny, funny, weird, uh, you know, uh, clown balloon shapes, um, you know. And so that's not a real microphone that exists in the real world, but through Amazonic second and third and higher orders, you can get polar patterns that we can't build physically by the way this is decoded. Um, again, we have to start with that sphere of mic elements and decode it. So there's a lot of processing going in right inside the microphone itself before it gets to that 16 channel interface. But connecting multiple of those is we're not there yet. So getting sample sync accuracy be between multiple high-order ambisonics mics is a is a difficult task at the moment. Preto, you had a comment. So the math the math looks like it's it's X Y Z. So it's to the third power, right? So the first order, second, third, and third orders. I'm, I'm looking at the the scrap that you designed. So the, the math is quite interesting here. Uh, Are I, you talking just, about number of channels? No, no the or, the orders of the ambisonics. I just figured out the the math, and so I was just trying to confirm that my math was right it's it's uh no Two. it's number it's the order plus one squared oh let me write that down <laughs> you notice I didn't, I didn't add that in before <laughs> no one needs to know that <laughs> except you and me our audience there's probably a dozen people out there going oh yes let me write that down. <laughs> let's go on to the next question sure robert shoji in los angeles writes in any recommended commercially available music recordings made with ambisonics Ooh, that's interesting, Jeff. Is there a market for that? that uh, I don't know of any off the top of my head. So it's not like quadraphonic. This album in quadraphonics, <laughs> you remember back in the... You had to bring back that back the, up, didn't you? 
Yeah, I did. Sorry about that. That shows you how old I am. We're, we're moving on. Next question, please. George Whittem in Venice, California writes in, what is lacking in the ambisonic mics, mics which are currently available? Oh, interesting. I think it's that pro high-end, uh, high-order ambisonics. I think you're going to start to see, and there, there's, there's at least one out there, but I think you're going to see more that have sort of a Dante uh, interface, the way to get multiple channels out of that. So inside the mic, and I imagine they could be PoE, power over Ethernet, powered through the Dante interface, but inside the mic element itself, you know, we have that sphere with with dozens of microphone elements on it. Um, then there will be processing powered by that same interface and then give you the multiple channels, higher order channels out of there. The big problem is they tend to be using the the MEMS technology, which is that uh, what's in your, your cell phone is that surface mount um, microphone. So they tend to uh, have a high noise floor is the big problem. So getting, you know, professional uh, high dynamic range microphones is kind of uh, the tough thing. It's not a lot of market for it. Let's have a contest to see who can figure out the cost of a Sheps ambisonic mic. George Woodham, you had another. <laughs> well, I, when I was at NAM, uh, I was talking to Soyuz, who makes unique mics in, in Russia, actually. And they went, this, this mic isn't on their website yet. This was, sorry about the crappy video still. That's just my crappy camera panning. But that's, a, that's an example of what one company thinks, what a really high quality, high end um, you know, uh, ambisonic microphone might be. And based on what a single capsule Soyuz mic costs, which is a pencil mic is roughly a thousand bucks. Multiply that and put it on a chassis. You're looking, you're looking definitely at $5,000 plus for a really high quality, high, high sensitivity, high, low noise microphone for sure. So yeah, it's, there's, there's going to be companies that are entering this space wanting to make these boutique, really high-quality capsules. Let's go to the next question. Jason, you're muted. Oh, sorry. Robert Choji writes in from Los Angeles. Could you discuss the various ambisonics mics available in the market and the advantages and disadvantages of each? Jeffrey? Jeff. I didn't know if George wanted to go first. His hand was up, so. Oh, George, you want to? Well, well you're the... I don't know yeah. nothing from nothing. I'm just Googling, right? But it looks like if you want a super inexpensive hobbyist entry point, guess who uh, makes it? You know, you're mentioning Zoom. They have, they have for 250 bucks, you get a 360 VR recorder with encoding decoding. I mean, price point wise, that seems basically impossible to touch if you just want to goof around. And hack that's around. the mic and the digital recorder all in one. So <laughs> yeah, and the encoding decoding, right? So. It's mind-boggling, and you know all the reviews are like, "This thing is cool. This thing is awesome, right?" Um, so it's definitely like, if you want a hobbyist mic, this looks like a good place to start. Um, yeah, Zoom usually know. uses those little SD cards that are very affordable, so you could probably just play around forever and just find your decoding. Go out and do those. And put a big, big furry on top of that thing. Stick it out by there a creek go. or in an ambient space, and go into uh, bliss. And you, you are an ambient recorder there. Well, this ambient music is a big deal now. Uh, oh, Courtney had a thought. Courtney? Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, F6, Zoom F6, is a recorder that supports uh, ambient recording and encoding and decoding with, uh, if you put it into uh, ambisonic mode. 
And then you could use, you know, as we looked at these, uh, this Rode sound field is about a thousand dollar for four element ambisonic mic. Uh, you can couple that with the uh, Zoom F6, and I noticed a lot of these people that are going out and recording these sound fields in different locations are using that kind of that combination. Well, in AirPods, it becomes so you know a big deal with their virtualish implementation of 360 degree sound field i think more people are going to be listening to it and just getting used to it by stock let's move to the next question oh well jeff had a thought jeff you wanted to add in on that sure the um so the zoom and then in the center here you see that core sound um i believe that's just under a thousand for that and then the right is uh without its lid on top of it is the sennheiser ambio mic which is kind of i think that's in the 1500 dollars range which if you compare that to say you know uh an mkh 50 which is a sennheiser um condenser it's kind of in the same price range but you're getting four capsules so i'm assuming those capsules are not as good and i'll tell you they are a little noisier um and i would take an m50 over that um but an m50 doesn't do uh, sorry, MKH50. Uh, we'd all take an M50, a Neumann M50 over any of these. <laughs> I'll take um, two, please. <laughs> especially at $1,500. Um, yeah. But, uh, but an MKH50, um, that uh, that I would pick, but it's a hypercardioid. It will not do ambisonics. So there's definitely uh, some drawbacks to this. Um, that's kind of where you get as far as the top of the line of, you know, then you go up to the sound field, who are the originators of this. Um, that's where you get to the top of those sort of professional mics. And then all the high order stuff is the noise becomes a problem because they're, they're using these tiny inexpensive elements just to keep the costs down. That makes sense. Actually, let's go to the next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana writes in, should we think of ambisonic sound as using virtual mics or would it be better to be termed as a derived microphone? What is a visual comparison for us visual learners? Oh, interesting question, Roscoe. Jeff, what do you think? Derived microphone is probably a uh, a good term, Roscoe. I'm glad you coined that. Um, I've always thought of them as virtual microphones um, uh, because coming from the MS world, we would think of a MS built of a cardioid and a bidirectional ZS mic uh, as we combine those two and we vary the level of the S, we have a virtual XY that is somewhat hypercardioid-ish and a different spacing depending or a different angle depending on how we uh, steer that. Um, but we're going to drive lots of mics from a uh, Ambisonics single A-format microphone. Um, visual comparison. Boy, that's a good question. I have a good visual comparison for zoom lenses versus uh, polar patterns, but I don't have one for derived microphones. I have to come up with that. <laughs> there you go. Uh, let's go on to the next question. George Wittemann, Venice, California writes, and anyone try the Zoom H3 VR360? Looks like a $250 entry point for hobbyists to experiment with excellent early reviews. I think we just jumped the shark because weren't we just there? Is this what we just looked at? Uh, George, yep. it was your question. Are you satisfied? Yep. yep. Yep, yep. Okay, moving on. Robert Choji in Los Angeles writes in, what is required to use an ambisonics mic with a sound devices mix pre-6.2? Jeff, are you familiar well, you with you need the... four channels. 
you need four preamps that you can match the gain of those four preamps. And that's pretty essential. Um, I don't know if sound devices includes a decoder. Um, and that's one of the biggest problems about trying to use ambisonics mics in a live situation is getting the decoding process without latency um, so that you can get it to use immediately. Nice. All right, let's go to the next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, how do you ensure mono compatibility when using spatialization in a mix? Jeff? Whoops. Are you freezing up a little bit or something? I did. Uh, yeah, uh, my internet's been saying uh, unstable about ah. uh, a few seconds every five minutes or so. Um, I've been there. Mono compatibility. Um, if you... Uh, if you track the the channels of ambisonics together and keep their levels and time, uh, you have monocompatibility because it begins with that coincident point source. Um, when you get into using the spatialization techniques, and as I was doing, putting that out to a binaural signal, um, binaural uses that head-related transfer function we talked about uh, two months ago or something. Um, and so it's going to do some head shadowing and time arrival things and binaural does not collapse down to mono quite as well. So that's where you really get into danger with mono compatibility. Nice. Good warning. Let's go to the next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana writes in, what areas do you hope to see this technology grow into? What do you see for the future of ambisonic sound? Uh, I would love to see uh, what types of polar patterns we can create in our derived microphone, if I use Roscoe's term, um, from a high-order ambisonics microphone. So we're all used to cardioids and hypercardioids and omnis and subcardioids and even shotgun mics, but we know that the standard interference tube shotgun has lots of artifacts off axis lots of lobing it's got strange you know comb filtering sound off axis based on that tube well we can get from higher order ambisonics a much more directional derived microphone we've got to get okay. quality third fourth higher order microphones in our last three minutes here george you got a quick comment and then we're going to try to get these next two done yeah, I, I mean, that, when you said it that way, like now I'm realizing like it, we're already using modeling mics with two capsules. So if we have a four capsule, not only can we model and shape the pickup pattern, but we can steer the pickup pattern because one of the biggest trouble we have as voiceover recordists getting good audio is in these, they're in these little small boxes, these little booths and acoustics are a nightmare and there's all these pressure zones. And if we can steer the pickup pattern into a small sweet spot, like the size of a fist, so that it's not hearing the rest of the room, that's a game changer. And so that could be another use case for, for what you would never consider a, an ambisonic mic used for, but to just make these very specific uh, virtual derived microphones that are exactly the right pickup pattern, exactly all the right things. And I can just say, put the mic here and don't, don't worry, I'll steer it for you. And here's your plug-in. Now the mic sounds the way it's supposed to sound. That would that is amazing. That's a cool. That idea. would be ideal. That's a very cool idea. You need you need the higher order mic though. You can't mm -hmm. use the four output. You need the the second or third order to get that tighter steering. Yeah, it would have to have a USB jack on it, and it would have to be yeah. something I can control in its own 
you know, uh, a built-in encoder decoder, because otherwise it would be a nightmare for the actor to use. <laughs> All right, we have essentially run out of time. And uh, Douglas Carmichael, I'm so sorry. You had two questions here, but we ran a little bit long in overtime, and I wanted to end on on time for this. Uh, don't forget, tomorrow, basics of video content uh, creation, the five basics. Uh, there's also, Elwilson Sparrow comes back today. For those of you who are looking for Isadora Lab stuff, that returns tomorrow. Um there's a couple of other meetings we're doing, but really what I have to do is just say my thank yous. So much goes into this. The panelists today have been fabulous. Jeff, it is so great to see you again. Thank you, George, for being here. I hope your product sells a gazillion. Uh, for the producers who are behind the show putting in our questions, we literally could not do this without you. For our uh, back-end crew, amazing job as always. You are fabulous. And everybody who appears on the panel every day, thank you. And we're going to go to the credits now. Is it time to whisper? Yes, yes, great job, everybody. Great job today. That was fascinating. It was. I was really glad I was here for that. Thanks, Jeff. Come back. Really we do this every day. Too. Made it. Super interesting. You have trouble getting in, Jeff? I had trouble getting out of my meetings. Oh, I hate it's the that. problem of being in higher education. They have lots of meetings, don't they? They we did. Usually I... Skip them. Sorry, Douglas. That's five seconds over. <laughs> Thank you. I'll see you tomorrow. Have a good one.